My wife, Carol, is one of those people who walks fast. I mean, really fast, particularly when she's shopping or has some purpose in mind. It's not related to trying to walk fast. If you have her try to walk fast, that's not, that won't get her to go. But if there's a purpose, she goes fast. One day we were walking on a sidewalk and her habit is to be about half a step ahead of me. And the thought occurred to me, I wonder what would happen if I just got a half a step ahead of her. And so I got a half a step ahead of her and she quickened her pace to get half a step ahead of me. And so I quickened mine to get half a step ahead of her. And before we got to the end of the block, we were in a full out sprint. And she turned to me and said, why are we running? (laughs) Now, we're in a race. Um, Every one of us. The race of life, right? We're going to talk about the refreshing of the running of our race. Some of us are running off course. Others are absolutely and completely exhausted in their race, depleted. Some don't even know why they're running a race, and some don't even know that they are in a race. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 22, and Paul has been introducing this idea of running a race. In chapter 8, he talked about Christian ethics. In chapter 9, he talks about Christian leadership. And right at the end of chapter 9, he says in verse 24, don't you know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Run in a way to get the prize of God's pleasure and his glory. Now in chapter 10, we looked at verses 1 through 13 about how others ran their race, specifically the people of Israel and how they failed and we should learn from their example so that we know how to run ours. And so now here in verses 14 through 22, running to win the race requires running the race that you're in. Some of us want to run somebody else's race. Some of us want to run a race that we imagine in our own mind. That's the race I'm running. But no, God has set our course, and running to win requires that we run the race that we are actually in. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 22. Therefore... My beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? 
What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Please have a seat. Running to win requires running the race that you are in. And so in verses 14 through 17, Paul tells us what race we're in. Run from idolatry and run toward Christ and his church. Run from idolatry, run toward Christ and his church. Now, he begins with this beautiful statement. Did you see it? Therefore, my beloved. Therefore, having to do with the example of Israel, hearing their bad example, therefore, as a result, dear ones, That's how he regards the church at Corinth, and if you know anything about the Corinthian church, you say, wow, they were a mess, but that's how the Apostle Paul regards them. They're beloved. He calls them sensible people in verse 15. He cares about them. Now, the Corinthian church largely understood that no idols were real, that they were no real gods, and therefore what they ate And where they ate it did not truly matter, especially if the real meal of the fellowship of the Lord's table or communion was observed. Paul's going to give the Corinthians some things to think about, however, in the enjoyment of that freedom, which should give the church pause about embracing those freedoms unthinkingly, without thinking of some possible implications. Particularly, Paul is concerned not just about food offered to idols, he's concerned about the eating of that food offered to idols by going into the pagan temples to participate in those rituals where that food is eaten. That's going to be his concern here. And so he says in verse 14, flee from idolatry. Run from idolatry. Now, this is far more easily said than done because every one of us likes to think that we don't have idols. You know, and very few of us probably have images in our homes that we uh, bow down and worship or go to some uh, religious service where there is the worship of some physical idol. But John Calvin noted something very early on in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. He says that the human heart is an idol-making factory. What he means by that is that, you know, we make an idol and we hold on to it. We cherish it for a while, an idol of the heart. And then we may discard or actually flee from that idol only to make another one. And at various stages of our lives, we end up attracted to different kinds of idols. We talked a little bit last week about what are ways that we can identify idols of the heart. Uh, One way, I think, is 
that we can make an idol of our own opinions, even when those opinions are correct. We can make an idol of them. That's a sad statement. It reminds me of something I posted on Facebook this past week when my granddaughter Jane was four years old. She says, I don't tell people what's going on because I actually don't know what's going on. <laughs> More of us should embrace that, including myself. But how do we avoid such idolatry? You know, if we're, we're to run from idols, how do we avoid it? Well, let me give you four ways in which I think can be helpful at, at eliminating or running away from an idol. First, kingdom of God living. To recognize what we're acknowledging today on this Palm Sunday, Jesus is king. And what that means first and foremost is I am not. <laughs> I am not king. I'm not king of my time. I'm not king of my life. I'm not king of my money. I'm not king of my house. I'm not king of my family. I am not king. Jesus is king. And when we have that approach, it means when we take up the various injustices that happen to us in life, whether it's something like getting cut off on the, on the highway or something that goes haywire in some um, marketplace transaction or somebody cheats us or whatever may happen, we can flee the idolatry of thinking that we are in charge or that we are king and in fact think more broadly to say, what in the big picture is God wanting to do that I may glorify him even in this mess that's created by this little thing where I am getting injustice? Kingdom of God living. Second, others' orientation. To have an orientation toward others. To do what was true of Jesus, as Paul describes in Philippians 2, to look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, so that we are focused on those others' interests. If they're not Christians, that we might think, how can we make Christ so compellingly beautiful? How can we proclaim Christ as compellingly true? And if those folks that are in our orbit are Christians, how can we love them and serve them as the real brothers and sisters in God's family that they truly are? A third way we can avoid idolatry is to be aware of the community of the saints, an awareness of the importance of belonging in that community. You belong. You are a member of our church. You belong in that community. You know, the New Testament word for community is the Greek word koinonia, and that word actually appears a bunch of times here in 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 22. It's translated in the ESV here as participation, but it's the word koinonia, and we'll be explaining that as we make our way through this text, but when we are aware that we are a part of the community of saints, it helps us see our idols for the silly things that they are. Because other people have a way of throwing a cup of cold water in our face and awakening us 
to our own idols. And then a fourth way we can avoid idolatry is to have a desire in every way to make Christ known to the lost and to welcome them to fellowship with him and his church. To be both by example and by testimony people who want to make Jesus known. So we avoid idolatry by kingdom of God living, others' orientation, awareness of the community of the saints, and a desire to make Christ known. In doing that, we can fulfill this command that Paul gives very briefly, flee, run from idolatry. Now in verses 15 through 17, Paul shows us that the illustration of the Lord's table, communion, reveals how sensible people should run their race. In other words, he says, look at the Lord's table and how it functions, and that will help you know how you can run your race. He speaks, verse 15, I speak as to sensible people. Paul expects the people in the church to be sensible. Now, was everybody in Corinth a sensible person? Not by reading First and Second Corinthians, you don't get that idea. But Paul, though he knows that, he is believing the best for them and he's going to give the best case that he can and he expects them to judge what he says. That's why he says there, judge for yourselves what I say. But in this judging, it's not an option for them to ignore or to disobey his apostolic counsel. He fully expects their judgment on this matter to be agreement with his view of the matter. And so now he dives into this illustration, verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, the bread that we break. The cup and the bread are participations, they are koinonias in the blood and body of Christ, which by the way is in his description here of cup and bread, that's out of the usual order that's given in the Bible of the Lord's table. He speaks of this cup of blessing, and we've got to understand a little bit of the Jewish background to the blessing at Passover. There were these various cups, and at each one there was a blessing that was stated. And in today's Passover seders, which reflects an ancient, um, don't know if it goes all the way back to the first century, but it certainly reflects a very, very old tradition, the description goes like this, blessed are you, O Lord our God, who brings forth fruit from the vine. That's the blessing of the cup, this idea of a shared fellowship of blessing God. Now, when he says the the cup of blessing, he's thinking of communion cup, right? The blessing of celebrating in that cup where we remember what the Lord Jesus did in shedding his blood for us. So the idea is, the shared fellowship that we have together of blessing God. We're blessing God for the shedding of the blood of his son. That's among others. There's a lot of things going on at the Lord's table, but this is the one that Paul's emphasizing right now. He's emphasizing it is a shared fellowship of brothers and sisters in God's family blessing God as we take that cup. We're blessing God for the shedding of the blood of his son. This word participation, as I mentioned, is the word koinonia. Verse 16, is it not 
a koinonia in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a koinonia in the body of Christ? A bonding, a bonding relationship is established that the meal is expressing. The bread and the cup is expressing the bonding relationship that we share together. Now, there are people who suggest that the body and the blood of Christ, there is an actual physical presence of Jesus in the bread and the cup. But the language here seems to minimize this idea of the physical presence of God in the food and drink, and rather it focuses on the bread and the cup being a koinonia with other believers. We're sharing together in this blessing God for the shedding of his son's blood for us. Verse 17 now, the Lord's table is a means of unifying the body of Christ. Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body. One bread leads to many people being one body. Understand what Paul, the, the beautiful uh, succession that Paul is making. We have the body of Christ, which was broken for us, Isaiah 53. This is symbolized by the bread. And so we partake of that one bread that blesses God for the broken body of his son. We participate in that one bread. In that one bread then, verse 17, we are participating, we are having a koinonia with the body of Christ, not his physical body, but the body of Christ, the church. What a beautiful picture. We are one body, the body of Christ, because we partake of one bread. Now, this doesn't mean don't get too hyper-literal here. This does not mean that there must be one piece of unleavened bread from which we all partake when we have a communion service. That's not what Paul's saying. Rather, it's Paul's description that we are one body because we all partake of the one bread, which is the body of Christ. It's not in the eating of the physical bread that we become one body. Rather, it is our trust in Christ that we become one body and our participation in the physical bread helps us see. It's a tangible, physical thing we see as we eat with one another. We see that we are one body. So, application. We should run from idolatry and toward Christ and his church. And we need one another in order to flee that idolatry and to run toward Christ. And this is why the Lord's table should mostly be observed in the church setting, not in private settings. It is that koinonia, that fellowship with others that is emphasized as the body and blood of the church's Lord that is being remembered as we partake of the Lord's table together. Now, in verses 18 through 20, you got to run with an awareness of the running course. I can't tell you how many times at every level, from state to national championships, you have from time to time a person who is leading the race 
and somehow they don't see the flag on the course in a cross-country race, and they make a wrong turn, and here the winner turns out to lose because he got off course. Run with an awareness of the running course. Verse 18, Paul gives the positive example of Israel. Now, in verses 1 through 13, he gave the negative example of Israel, didn't he? Here he gives a positive one. Those who participate in the eating of sacrifices at the altar in the temple have a fellowship. They are koinonia in the altar. Consider the people of Israel, not those who eat the sacrifices, koinonia in the altar. Um, Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 to 27, shows that Israel ate together at the sacrifices. But nowhere in the Old Testament does this sacrificial food represent God. Rather, the sacrificial food was designed to bring God's people together in koinonia, bound together in the worship of the Lord. This koinonia was not something that Israel was supposed to do with their pagan neighbors at the worship ceremonies of Baal. They weren't supposed to do that. That got condemned. Now, this example that he says, consider the people of Israel, this example is limited in application to the church because there's some differences. Unlike the sacrifice at the altar, the Lord's table is not a sacred meal in the same sense that Israel's meal was because Israel's meal came after real sacrifices at a real altar. Our meal that we share in the Lord's table comes only in memorial of the sacrifice of Christ that was done once for all. It is not when we participate at the Lord's table that the elements turn into, in any real sense, the body and blood of Jesus. They are rather a memorial that we are sharing together to bless God for having his son's body broken for us and his blood shed for us. Now, Paul's warning in verse 19 about the eating of food offered to idols in the temple of an idol, he's wanting to reiterate that he's not saying that the sacrificial food is anything or that the idol itself is anything. He says... Do I imply, what am I implying? That the food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? He's saying, no, I'm not saying that. The koinonia that we share at the Lord's table is genuine. The food at an idol's table, that has no real significance because the idol itself is not real. But, verse 20, while idols are not real and are no gods at all, chapter 8, verse 4, they are nonetheless an avenue, now listen, they are an avenue through which demons can be active. Look at verse 20. No, food offered to idols isn't anything, an idol isn't anything, but I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be koinonia with demons. You see, While idols aren't real and aren't any gods at all, they nonetheless can be an avenue through which demons can be active. The sacrifices of pagans 
to their idols are actually, Paul says, sacrifices to the demons that lie behind the idols. And Paul doesn't want them to be participants or koinonia with demons. The worship of demons is involved whether we know it or not or whether the participants themselves know it or not. There's demonic activity there, Paul's saying, and you got to stay aware. So, run with awareness of the running course. Quite often, as believers, we are unthinking about the unseen world, and we ought to become more aware. Now, verses 21 and 22, run without compromise for God alone. Run without compromise for God alone. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake, koinonia eyes, <laughs> it's a Burkle paraphrase, of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Paul gets very blunt here, doesn't he? Because he sees that this principle is very, very important. You can't drink the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of demons. Paul's warning them, watch what you're doing. Most of us are not watchful enough about demons. We aren't. Now, it's also true that some are so watchful that they think there are demons everywhere, even where they don't exist. We don't want to be that either. But we need to be watchful about demons. I'll, I'll add this. I don't have, you know, what I would say, um, like overwhelming biblical support for this, but I do want to suggest it to you. As our nation retreats from Judeo-Christian foundations, we are going to see increased demonic activity, and I think you're already starting to see that. And so we need to be prepared in ways that perhaps we have not before for the fact of real demonic activity in our own spheres of living where for many of us that has never even been a, a thought or a question. Um, and the example that I give you is in the, in the life and ministry of Jesus. When he was on this earth working miracles, and casting out demons, if you look at his ministry of casting out demons, you would see that most of his demon casting out ministry was done in Gentile or in areas that were far distant from those Judeo foundations. That yes, there was all kinds of problems with the scribes and the Pharisees. And they had all kinds of things wrong and Jesus reserved his strictest judgment for them. But one thing that they didn't have was active issues with demons because they had a foundation of biblical authority that they were holding to even if only hypocritically. But out there in Gentile land, man, it was, it was the Wild West in terms of demonic activity. I think that as you see us as a nation retreating from biblical authority, from the Judeo-Christian foundations, from even despising those Judeo-Christian foundations. There are people who are despising them. What you will see when you see the unreasonableness of people is actually 
what's behind that are real demons. So, we run without compromise for God alone. Paul now gives a prohibition in verse 21. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake or koinonia of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Paul's saying eating food offered to idols is one thing. Going to the pagan temple and joining in their ceremonies and joining in the koinonia, the participation, the fellowship of those people with their idol, that's quite another We are not merely eating with friends at the pagan temple. We are joining with others who are worshiping idols, idols that have demons behind them. That's the point Paul's making. And so he concludes with two questions in verse 22. And the questions that he asks is about the running of our race. Run without compromise for God alone. In our race, the race of life, do we really... Is it really our aim to figure out how close we can get to koinonia with demons? Is that really our goal? How close can we get without actually participating? Is that, where we're, is that our best aim? Or do we really want to say, with all my heart, I want to please the Lord? By eating at the pagan temple, even though the, the, the idol is nothing and the food is nothing, By eating at the pagan temple, we open ourselves up to koinonia with demons and thereby provoking the Lord to jealousy. And so this first question, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? You might want to ask the question when you see this is, why can God be jealous and we don't get to be? That seems unfair, right? How how dare God say he can be jealous? What kind of an evil being is that that says, I'm jealous? Well, the answer is that God is not jealous in the same way that we are jealous. We are jealous because we are selfish and want our way, and we want to be God. God is jealous because he only wants the best for us, and he is God. (laughs) He actually is God alone is God. Any worship of any other is wrong. The greatest good can only be achieved by worshiping the true God. If we pursue other things, the more questionable that they are, the less good that can happen. So God is jealous that the greatest good happens. The entire universe is made for his glory. The greatest end of all things is the glory of God. God is jealous that the greatest end of all things happens. Second question, are we stronger than he? Now, most of us would get this answer right if we were given a pop quiz where we got to check the box. Are you stronger than God? Most of us would check, no, not stronger than God, right? Most of us would get that question right on a quiz, But that's not what Paul's asking the question for. He's asking for intense personal introspection and evaluation. We may think that we are strong enough to handle all of our freedoms and the risks that they bring, but you and I are weaker than we imagine. 
we're weaker than we imagine. And we certainly are not stronger than God. And therefore, we should not challenge God as though we know better than He does. To tra-la-la through life in the thought that, nah, it's all going to work out somehow without an intense personal reflection of the idols of our heart and the way we are running a race and that we actually are in a race and that there's only one way to win it and that's to win the prize by pursuing God and running from idols and toward Christ and His church and with an awareness of the running course that we're on and without compromise for God alone. That's the only way the race is won. So let's think about some applications here. In third world contexts, this passage is very, very real. I'll tell one story from when I lived in Bolivia. I had a a friend of mine who was a missionary to a pretty big group of people, and they had a pastoral conference. All the pastors were coming for the conference. A whole bunch of pastors were loaded up into this minibus, and in the process, the minibus tips off the side of the road, and they're all very badly, badly, badly injured. And so there were several hundred pastors at this conference, and they're all praying for these brothers who have tipped over in this minibus, and they're at death's door, and they get done praying, and the, the guys say to my friend, the missionary, okay, now we got to go drink the blood of a black dog. Now, he has been working with them for over a decade, has never heard this before. He goes, wait, wait a minute, what? What, what's this, blood of a black dog? Well, you know, whenever there's something where people are at death's door, you got to drink the blood of a black dog in order to satisfy the, the, the gods, uh, particularly Pachamama, the Mother Earth. If you don't do that, they're, they're not going to live. And there were some pastors who were saying, no, I shouldn't, but they were being put incredible pressure on by others by saying, if they die and you didn't do this, we know the blood is on your hands. It was amazing how the crisis revealed the idols. Now, it doesn't take long to draw the line, does it, between them and us? The crisis Oh, we may not be tempted to drink the blood of a black dog, but what other crazy and odd and strange superstitions are we holding on to rather than the white-hot worship of the living God? This is more real to us than imagined. The problem of yoga, crystals, transcendental meditation, Meditations of all kinds these days where we're designed to empty our mind rather than to fill our mind with Scripture, pagan rituals, witches, the worship of Mother Earth, environmentalism, and I'm not against the environment, but environmentalism, which is about the worship of pagan deities. It's more real to us than imagined, friends. There is a danger in inviting the demonic into our lives. And it's not just those things. 
Probably the worst, the, the, some of the worst things are things that are much more recognized as evil, and yet we still, as Christians, participate in them and find ourselves not fleeing from them, but rather playing around with them. Things like pornography, which is a huge avenue of introducing the demonic into your family, by the way. Real demons or the abuse of alcohol and drugs. You know, they don't call alcohol spirits for nothing. The world of the demonic is closer to us than we imagine and getting closer. And the thought, I can enjoy my freedoms. Oh yes, I understand all of that. And if you're going to tell me, are you telling me I'm sinning by and fill in the, I'm not into that. All I'm asking you to do is to ask yourself, what race are you running? And for whom are you running? And what are you willing to do to say, I will not have any demons? No koinonia with the demonic. Last illustration, or last application, the Lord's table is just as much horizontal as it is vertical. Sometimes when we participate in the Lord's table, we think it's just me here with the Lord, you know, and it is that. But understand this text, that it's also every bit as much horizontal. It's about our relationship with one another and the koinonia, the, partnership, the participation we have with one another in blessing God for what he sent Jesus to do. There's a real koinonia with one another at the table, which is why how we relate to one another at the table is going to get addressed in chapter 11 because people at Corinth weren't doing it right. I'll just add, this is also why participation in worship is so much better in person than remotely. We wrote a whole long paper as elders during the pandemic of why it is that we were not going to celebrate the Lord's table remotely. And one of the important things was this teaching in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. It can't be done remotely. It is in the physical connection of one another as brothers and sisters that we have that real koinonia at the Lord's table. So, we run from idolatry and toward Christ and his church. We run with awareness of the running course and we run without compromise for God alone. Let's pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, Take these things that we have discussed and help us to flee from idols, to run with an awareness of the course, that we'd be aware where we may find ourselves in participation with demons and run away, that we would run without compromise for you alone, God. And as we enter into a chapter in our life as a, as a culture where there is going to perhaps be more and more encounters with the demonic. Give us no, take away any of our fears and give us full confidence in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ and his certain defeat of death 
and Satan. Now, God, for those who've never put their faith in Jesus, I pray that they would do that right now because they're, they're in hazard of eternal punishment. May they see your love poured out for them in Christ and trust Jesus to forgive them of their sin and that he rose from the dead to build them a place where they will enjoy you forever. Help them to trust Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And as we gather around this table today, may our fellowship be sweet with one another as we bless you for what Jesus, your son, has done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.